Good morning. My name is Nathan Miller. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to work with the most important people at Friendship Church, the students. Let's hear it for the students. Seriously, though, I love working at Friendship. I've been here about four years, and it is such a joy. My family and I moved here uh, right before this global pandemic, and it's been nice to get to see your faces more now. In these last years, uh, when I first came, a lot of masks were covering it. But now, I get to get to know names and faces. I was in seminary, and it was my third year, my final year, and a group of us actually had a scholarship. And so we went to Wisconsin to this camp. And it was a very cool camp. I'm going to get my water right away. Because I've been struggling with a cough this morning. And a bunch of other schools that also received, received the scholarship came. And this camp in Wisconsin, let there be water, ever-flowing water. The, the people that gave us the scholarship were amazingly generous. And what they did was they wanted to create this atmosphere to celebrate the hard work we did to make it to that point. So they brought in a cool Christian artist and some really good food, and then they brought in a special speaker. And you probably might not know who this is, but when you just finished seminary or finishing seminary, Haddon Robinson was the guy who wrote our textbook. He, like, was the, the... the greatest preacher, and he came to, to our little cluster of students and was our speaker for the weekend. Have you ever sat under a master teacher? Has anyone ever sat under a master teacher? There's different disciplines, so it's a different person for you. probably isn't Haddon Robinson, but when you're studying for three years, how do you preach? And then the guy who wrote the textbook standing there, you're like, oh, this is so cool. I'm taking notes just like you said in chapter four. This is awesome. But if you can imagine sitting under a master teacher, whatever discipline that you care about most, it's a pretty amazing thing. This morning, we get to sit under a master teacher because we've been walking through this passage in Mark and Jesus today, as a master teacher, he was the rabbi of all rabbis, gives his final lecture, his final teaching in the temple. And then, in a few short days, he's going to go to the cross. And so, today we get to sit in on a master teacher as he teaches a lesson on love. So if you're in Mark already, great. Most of you aren't because I haven't asked you to turn there, but please do. Mark 12. We're in Mark 12 and we're finishing up uh, the chapter. And we're working through Mark in a, a series called Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. We all are going to work on our Hebrew through this series. And even today, we get a look at a little Hebrew. Uh, Hopefully you feel like you could go and speak Hebrew after these weeks together. Mark 12, 28 through 44. So the lecture that he gives is in the temple. And we know we're in the temple because he's been asked question after question in the temple starting in 11. 27. And next week, he's going to leave the temple. So this is his last teaching, again, before he goes to the cross. We love 
goat debates, don't we? The greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time? I'm a soccer guy, so the great debate is, is it Cristiano Ronaldo or is it Lionel Messi in the recent World Cup? Answer that for us. Messi! Or basketball. I grew up playing basketball, and for me, my walls were plastered with Michael Jordan. But some of you today might have posters of LeBron James or Steph Curry or whoever else. But we know who the greatest of all time is. And my walls proved it. Or for food. Uh, the greatest food of all time, is it, is it sushi? Or is it Scandinavian sushi, uh, pickled herring? Like it's, we, we debate these things. Clearly it's one of those two, though, right? Amen? Amen? Are you with me on this? No? Well, even back in Jesus' time, they debated goat discussions. Which is the greatest commandment of all time? One of the scribes came to Jesus and asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Which is the greatest of all time? And this was an important question because... The rabbi, he had heard, remember these last couple weeks, Jesus' answers were amazing. Like, pretty impressive teacher. Okay, it seems like you know a lot. Can you settle it once and for all? What's the greatest commandment then? There were 613 to choose from in the Torah. Those first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they, they had memorized these and 365 were positive commands, 248 uh, or were negative, and 248 were positive. Some were light, like minor things if you broke. Some were heavy, serious things if you broke the commands. Do you remember in, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, if uh, even the least of these commands, do you remember that, that phrase? There, there was a lot of discussion in that day about all these rules, which one is maybe the most important of all. And so Jesus answers, and it is amazing, his response. He says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It's amazing that he takes 613 commands and narrows it down to one word, love. In Matthew's parallel passage, Matthew 22:40, Jesus says, "On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets, or all of the, the rest of the Torah and the scriptures depend on the foundation of love." And you you might be tempted to think, as Jesus had spent all day debating these teachers, trying to trick him with their questions, that he, he could bring something new to the table, some fresh revelation. He's Jesus, after all. But what does he do? He doesn't just go with an oldie but a goodie. He goes with the, the very command that would have been the most known of all. In fact, the, the scribe asking the question, without a doubt, had already said this 
earlier that day. Because every pious Jew would recite the Shema, which is what it was called, like multiple times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Back in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the Jews began, because God commanded them to, to remember these things. Put them in front of you as you rise, as you sit. Teach them to your children. And so this wasn't a new command. But he's going to add things to it in a way that he's trying to make a very clear point. As a master teacher, he doesn't throw out the Torah textbook, but he gives a Notes version of the whole Law and Prophets. He takes these two commands that are very well known and makes them one. And I say one because look it, he says there is no other commandment singular greater than these. He doesn't say there's no other commandments greater than these. And, and in a moment, the scribe's actually going to repeat back to him what he says and says that, uh, okay, the things you're saying is much more than all the whole burnt offerings. In other words, it's not all these things are, but is, a singular. What Jesus is doing, he's, he's taking two commands and mysteriously making them one, kind of like when a husband and wife get married. They become one flesh. There's a mystery involved here. And Jesus is taking these commands and giving kind of a new, unified, singular command. And he does it by going both vertical and horizontal, doesn't he? The Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the Shema, love God. And then he adds Leviticus 19, verse 18, love neighbor as well both horizontal and vertical. But again, it can't be overstated. This is a very common prayer. It'd be like us saying the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed. To, to the Jewish people, they would, they would say this, this prayer regularly. But Jesus wants it to be very clear, the one that you're saying this prayer to is standing in front of you right now. He's going to get to that. He's, he's wanting them to see the greatest commandment of all is the one you said earlier, but by the way, I'm the one you're, you're talking about. It's not just a, a prayer over here in the ether. It's me you're talking about. And we can easily get lost in the categories, can't we? So, love the Lord your God with all your okay, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when, when I first read this passage, I... I really started to get lost in the categories. Okay, so I, I can love my, I, I feel like this week I've loved God with my, with my mind, but maybe not my heart as much, and maybe my soul next week a little bit. Don't, don't get overly bogged down with the categories. Just notice the word in front of every single one of them. What's that word? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. It's not the categories, it's the totality that he's wanting to emphasize. Our whole being needs to love God. Our whole being. And the horizontal, he, he adds this beautiful kind of contrast to the first. There's no restraint in our love with God. No restraint at all. Entirety. All our heart, soul, mind, and strength goes vertical with God. But when it comes to loving other people, we need some help. We need some guidelines, don't we? Because it's so easy to like love people too much or love people not enough. And Jesus knows this. Like, seriously, we can make other people our idols, or we could be 
uh, flippant and, and not love them in the way that we should. So he throws in this great clarifier. How much should I love other people? Uh, the, to, to the degree that you love yourself. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I love myself quite a bit. Well, there's your answer, right? He, he, he provides that clarifier, that, that right amount of not too much and not too little, because we're supposed to love ourselves the right amount. But what is he saying? He's, he's saying, love God with your whole being and your neighbor as yourself. So what does the scribe do in response? The master teacher, the scribe, he agrees with the other master teacher. He agrees and he says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He agrees that love is more important than ritual or the sacrificial system. Right answer. Right answer. But... Jesus' response to the scribe shows that something is missing. Something is missing. Look at the response that Jesus gives in verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Uh, my kids just got their report cards back this week. Anyone else get the report cards recently? I don't know about you, but all of the, the symbols and like the, the be, below expectation exceeds expectation. What happened to the letters? I want to I see letters. I want to see A's and B's. I don't want a plus sign or an asterisk. Ah, rant over. But as I look through these, it's encouraging to see progress made from the earlier year to, to now. My children can read. It's great. I love it as a dad. Uh, they, can work, they can read a little better, but they're working on it. Um, a good teacher can say right answer or wrong answer. A good teacher can do that. But only a divine teacher can say whether you are near or far from the kingdom of God. Right? When, when the scribe is asking the question and Jesus gives the answer... He does more than just saying, yep, you're right. But he also gives him a, an insight into his eternal state of, of his soul. Hey, by the way, um, you're not quite there, but you're getting there. You're not far from the kingdom. You haven't actually made it yet. As people heard divinity speak, they're silenced. Okay, this isn't a normal scribe. He just, he knows the state of this guy's soul. Uh, we're, just, we're just debating here, man, like, that's pretty serious stuff. Jesus' divinity stops their questions. And Mark's storytelling here begs the question, did, did the scribe make it? Okay, you're saying he's not far, but, but he's, he's like, he gets it, right? Uh, and this is exactly what Mark loves to do. Do you remember earlier in Mark uh, 10, we see the rich young ruler come to Jesus, similar question. Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is really blunt with him, and kind of sees right into his soul. It's not a theological debate, but an action debate. Hey, sell everything you have. Give to those in need, and this is the pathway. He's like, ah, my wallet is really big, so I'm going to need to go do some stuff with that. He, he, he rejects, doesn't he? And in this passage, 
The text doesn't say. Why? Why doesn't it give us the answer? He's not far, and then the next verse says, but he made it. No, it doesn't say that. Because he wants, Mark, wants his readers and us to ask the same question. Are you near or far from the kingdom? The scribe was uh, close, but no cigar to the kingdom. What about us? Are we near or are we far? The, the, the text begs that question of us. And this story illustrates something very important, an important truth. We can get the right answer and still fail the test. The scribe got the right answer, but he still failed. It's good to know the right answer, but it's eternally more important to live out that truth fully with our lives. Jesus invites those into his kingdom who love him with everything by trusting, obeying, and receiving him, not just knowing the right answers. And Jesus asks us this morning, do you love God with your whole being this morning? Do you love God with your whole being? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Would Jesus say to you, uh, you're not far, or would he say, you got it? A great teacher answers his students' questions. In these last couple of weeks, these questions that Jesus gets, he answers. But an even greater teacher asks certain questions that open the eyes of their students, Right? And Jesus now, that everyone's silenced, he's going to ask a really, really important question. Look in verse 35. After being questioned, Jesus asks the question. After a day of questions comes the question of the day. Verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And you're like, okay, what does this have to do with anything? This is kind of a strange thing to bring up, isn't it? Jesus, and some reading might say, okay, is God saying that Jesus isn't the son of David? No, he's not saying that. He's just beginning a riddle, beginning a a question. And we know that's not what he's saying because earlier, do you remember blind Bartimaeus, a couple Verses earlier was like, back in, what was it, uh, 10, Mark 10. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he says it again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And how does Jesus respond to this blind guy saying that? He heals him. Your faith has made you well. He, he agrees and commends this blind guy. He's not disagreeing with the fact that he's the son of David. Or another way to say that is, has human lineage. He's agreeing with the fact that, that, yes, indeed, I come from the line of David. I have a human descent. But then he's asking a question, is that all I am? He's kind of begging that question. And he's trying to teach them something with his question, that the object of love, that we should love fully with heart, soul, mind, and strength, is greater than we know. 
Do you remember the greatest command is, begins with, hear, O Israel. The, the word in Hebrew for hear is Shema. So that's why it's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is. There's only one God, only one God, no other true God. And if you remember back in Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples were, were having a discussion about his identity. Remember, he asks them, who do people say that I am in Mark 8, 27? And then he asks the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And do you remember? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Back in 8, chapter 8, he was trying to get the disciples to see, hey, I'm, I'm a big deal. I am the I am. I am more than just the, the person in the human lineage. I am the sovereign Yahweh, the, the God of the universe. And if you remember that little debate back in 8, right afterwards he shushes them. Right? Okay, guys, let's keep this to ourselves and then let's, let's keep moving on. And if you were here for Thomas Gold's sermon, the shush becomes a shout, right? That in our chapter, as all of them are gathered in the temple, and it's a few days before he's going to go to the cross, he's shouting now who he is. And he does it with scribes who are so intellectual that instead of just saying it, he needs to quote a verse. And he doesn't just quote any verse. He quotes Psalm 110, which is the most quoted verse uh, the most quoted psalm of all of uh, uh, Judaism. It was quoted all over the, um, the scriptures. And he brings it up because he's trying to make a point. The point is Mark wants his readers and, wants, and God wants us to know that Jesus is even greater than we realize. Again, he does this in a strange way uh, to our Western English eyes, but to his Jewish audience, full of expert teachers, this riddle is going to prove his power and reveal his true identity. So, what does he say? Verse 36. This is Psalm 110, but he's quoting it. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Jesus is asking. And the great throng heard him gladly. In a nutshell, Jesus is making two points. The Christ is David's son, the son of David, and therefore human, but the Christ is also David's Lord and therefore divine. And it might be hard to see, but uh, the Lord said to my Lord. You see that? He's quoting, and in Hebrew... The Lord said to my Lord, uh, Mark is written in Greek, right? And so in Greek, it's just the same word, kyrios, kyrios. But in Hebrew, what's actually being quoted in Psalm, the word is Yahweh and Adonai. In other words, the Lord God said to my Lord, my superior, and Jesus is highlighting something. He's essentially asking this question. How can he be his son if he calls him Lord? I've got two boys, Leland and Jack, and every night I put them to bed. And if you were there putting them to bed with me, 
I think you'd be surprised if they said, uh, or if I said to them, Lord Leland, Lord Jack, the day is done. The devices shall be put down. Come to your bed and, and close the eyelids for the day, O Lord Leland and Lord Jack. You'd be like, what? First of all, it's just weird and this is a strange illustration, but dads don't call their sons Lord, right? We, we don't have these, like, I'm, I'm in charge, not them. What it should sound like is every night, or actually every morning, when they wake up, they should come and say, Oh, Lord, Nathan, how can I assist you this morning? Can I get you your coffee or your slippers or the newspaper? They still have newspapers, right? That, that's, what, that's what it should be like, right? You wouldn't bat an eye if they're calling me Lord, which I like this. This is good. But if I call them Lord, you're like, why, why, would, why would I, the dad, call my sons Lord? And you're like, okay, Jesus, why are you using this really convoluted way to say something? Just say it. But he's speaking to teachers who their ears peak and perk when they hear a text they've debated and talked about all the time. And they're like, wait a minute. Oh, you're undoing something. Oh, that's right. The Messiah is not simply David's son on a human level. If he's calling him Lord, he's actually God's son as well. And what I love is he, Jesus doesn't use convoluted different things to what they hear every day. He had prayed earlier that morning, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, in a way that, that might have been rote, but he's infusing fresh truth. And he's quoting a well-known psalm, but highlighting the fact that, hey, the incarnation is something to be marveled at. That Jesus can both be the son of David, come from the human line of David, and also over David as his Lord. Essentially, he's wanting them to see that Jesus is both the human prophet in the line of David and also God's divine son. And the Messiah who will save the world. The Messiah will surpass David's lineage because his identity and transcendent status is divine. Sitting at God's honored and authoritative right side. Wow, that was some good work, you guys. Some good exegetical work. We dug into the Psalms. And you're like, okay, Jesus, this is a long lecture. This is, but he's a master teacher, okay? And if you were me, I would have already checked out in the classroom. Most of you are probably all checked out. I get that. We're quoting Psalms. We're talking about Adonais and Hebrews and Greeks. But listen. How do you land the plane as a good teacher? I get this wrong all the time. I, I lecture with my kids and I just say, this is what you need to do. All right. And I leave. But you got to give examples, right? Good teachers. Good pedagogy gives examples. And Jesus knows this because he's the master teacher. And he ends with an incredibly helpful negative example and positive example. What does this love look like? What does this love look like? Let's start with the negative example. Verse 38. You're still in the text with me. 
We're landing the plane. In his teaching, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So what does Jesus do? He's with all of his disciples and the teachers and the crowd gathered in the temple and he looks around. He's like, okay, I want to drive home what it means to love me with everything and to love others like you love yourself. Hey, I'm a big deal. Who you're loving? I'm not just the Messiah. I'm God Almighty. And I want you to see this. So he looks around and he's like, See all these religious people here, these scribes, that look a certain way, dress a certain way? Religious activity, language, dress? I see right into their hearts. And I'm going to tell you a little secret. They're not authentic. Their hearts do not love God and neighbor. And all their religious motions are bringing only condemnation from me. You don't know this, but Bob and Tom and Bill over there, but in a Hebrew version, I don't know what that is. Babisha and I don't, whatever. Bob, Tom, you know, the Hebrew, he's like, you see these guys and you think, wow, they've got these long flowing robes. They're praying fancy prayers. They're sitting in that cool spot, which this row of holiness is just being missed right here. Like you could be so much closer to God if you were, That notebook is holy, but sitting in the right spot doesn't make you holy, right? Wearing a collared shirt on a Sunday morning doesn't make you pleasing to God. Doing up your hair all fancy with the updos and whatever, going to church in our finest, Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm looking at. I see these people walking around that you're admiring, like, oh, I wish I could be as holy as that guy who just prayed really, really impressively in public. And Jesus is encouraging them, saying, actually, they're mostly hypocrites. Most of these guys are hypocrites. They just grilled me with a bunch of questions, trying to trick me. They're not as spiritual as you think. He gives this really helpful negative example and saying that man looks on the outward appearance, but but I look at the heart. And the way that you dress this morning is not the big deal, the main deal. What is the big deal? If Jesus was standing here and he looked out, he'd be like, wow, you guys look sharp. And he'd look right into your soul and know whether you are near or far from the kingdom, wouldn't he? Because he knows our heart So don't be like the scribes. Don't be hypocrites. Don't dress nice, but have a heart that is far from God. Instead, he gives a positive example. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, And said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. 
all that she had to live on. I am so amazed at this master teacher being able to scan the the temple grounds, see a lady who just dropped in two coins and point the crowd's attention to her. To say, do you want to know what it looks like to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you want to know what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself? Exhibit A. See that lady over there? She just dropped in an offering that is pleasing to me. Two little lepta make one 64th of a denarius. Do you remember the, should we pay taxes to, to Caesar or who, who should we give our money to? And they take out a denarius, which is like a day's wage. This is one 64th of that. If you take your penny and you chop it into pieces, great, I got two little chunks of penny. She put one chunk in and then the second chunk in. Nothing, right? Compared to the big gifts that everyone else gives. And what do we see? That sacrificial giving honors Christ even if the amount is small. But that comfortable giving honors no one even if the amount is large. I'll say it again. Sacrificial giving honors Christ even if the amount is small. But comfortable giving honors no one even if the amount is large. She had two coins. If you were her, if I was her, I would have put in one. <laughs> like, like, why two? But no, she didn't. She gave her all, didn't she? The amount was not large, but the sacrifice was great. Warren Wearsby said, it's not the portion, but the proportion that is important. I think this widow looks back to the rich young ruler and puts him to shame for doing what he couldn't. Give his all to gain all. She could, and she does. And the widow looks forward to Jesus and the cross. Her sacrificial giving is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do in a few days on the cross. And Jesus says, please, Don't miss this. You've got spiritually looking people everywhere. And you might think, because people look a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way, that I am pleased with them and that they love me fully and love each other fully. But make no mistake. You want to know what true love looks like? Loving with all we have? It's the kind of sacrificial gift you just saw that woman make. And that lesson is one that we have to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with. Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He says, how does your giving reflect your love for God and neighbor? Is your giving demonstrating that you love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? And neighbor as self. Again, this is the perfect example. Do you know where the money that she put in probably went? It was likely historically to go to the temple, uh, the people at the temple to help them. It literally was helping her neighbor in an act of 
of sacrifice to God. She is the perfect example of loving God and neighbor as herself. And Mark is wanting us to wrestle. Are we, as we examine our hearts this morning, do we love in that same way? Or are we posturing with our spirituality, our religious actions? Or are we actually loosening our grip on the things in our life in a way that demonstrates complete and total trust in God? The lesson of love our master rabbi has for us in this text is to love God with our whole being and our neighbor as ourself. Because God is worthy of all our love. And loving God with everything doesn't mean religious activity, language, and dress. Instead, loving God with everything means sacrificially, wholeheartedly, offering whatever we have to God and his purposes in obedience and trust. 